Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Boy, if you're here for the first time, we appreciate you coming out. I know sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. Thanks for taking the step to do that. If you're joining us online, also, thank you for, for being with us. So when I finished college, I started with a campus ministry, and they put me in Colorado. If you've been to Texas, where I was in school, it's as flat as this stage, and I had never skied. Well, if you live on the front range of Colorado, skiing's a form of, of getting together. And so um, the Campus Crusade staff from Greeley, Fort Collins, and Boulder, they'd all come together for a, a staff ski day during the week. And so we'd meet in Boulder the night before, and off we'd go up I-70. And I said to these people, hey, I really want to get to know you, but I've never skied before. And one guy said, oh, bro, that's no problem. I'll teach you to ski. So if you skied before, you know there's greens. That's the lowest thing. And so we did two runs, two runs, two runs on the green. And we went to the blues. And if you skied the blues, there's no moguls, but they're really steep. And so we ride up the lift together, and they all go down. And I said, hey, John, I thought you were going to teach me. And he goes, bro, come on down. <laughs> I'm terrified. So I think I need not to pick up speed. So if the slope's down there, I ski this way because I don't want to pick up speed as much as I can. But eventually when you get to the side, you're going to run into a tree. So you learn to turn real suddenly and real fast, but then you head the other way and you're going and, and, and you kind of learn to turn again. And sometimes I think that's a metaphor, my first experience on the blue slope, for how many of us live life. We go from crisis and we got to turn, and, but we're just headed for another one. And life is, if we're honest, it's, it's running us ragged. Where do we turn when life runs us ragged? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open that to 2 Samuel 8. We're going to go through this chapter, wrestling with that question, where do we turn when life runs us ragged? If you haven't been with us, we've been spending the last number of months in the books of First and Second Samuel. Israel is transitioning from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. They have made the mistake of they think if we get a king, we'll be secure. And God said, no, that's a bad idea. Your security isn't me. No, we need a king. And finally, through the prophet Samuel, God says, give them, give them what they want, and they can learn. Through the mistake, that what they need is me, not an earthly king. So the first king is a guy named Saul. Uh, when he's anointed, Saul, you don't have absolute authority here. Saul missed the memo in that. Twice acted on his own, ignored God, and God said, done, we're moving on. He anointed a second king while Saul was still alive. That was David, David who dropped Goliath with a stone. And, and Saul's wigged out by David's rising popularity. And so for anywhere from 10 to 13 years, he chases him. In that, God teaches David things about faith. And finally, Saul dies in a battle. And seemingly the pathway for David to be king is... Straightforward, but before that, they have a civil war. Finally, David's in. He's seated as king. He takes Jerusalem, moves the ark in. And that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Now, as I read this, the chronology of chapters 8 with chapters 5 through 7, we're not sure about. Because this is chapter 7, David is settled in Jerusalem with the ark. This talks us about some battles, so probably it happens before chapter 7. We're not sure, but here we go. Um, now, after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. If you haven't been with us, the Philistines were the ubiquitous enemy, always taking land, invading Israel, and now David's laying them out. 
Saul couldn't do it, but David is defeating them. Even though the Philistines have more numbers and they have better armor, David is defeating them. But not only the Philistines. Verse 2. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. And we ask, why? You're laying them down in two out of three. It seems kind of ruthless, kind of barbaric. My answer is, I don't know. We don't know what was going on there. Were there so many of them? Were they rebellious? I, I don't know. And the Bible doesn't answer that. But it does let us know that, that David lived in violent times. But David's not done there. Verse 3, then he, David defeated Hedizer, the son of Riab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. Probably enough horses for Israel's chariots. And hamstringing the horses, they could be used for agriculture, but not for war. Well, when Hadizar is defeated, an ally comes to his, um, to his side. When the Armenians of Damascus came to help Hadizar, king of Zoah, David killed 20, 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. Why? Is this going so well for David? Here's why it's going so well for David. End of verse 6. End of verse 6. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. God's doing something through David. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But God is working through David where Saul and Israel has, has not had success. And, and David's um, beating well-armored Armies, look, look at what he takes into Jerusalem. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadidazar and brought them to Jerusalem from Beta and from Barothel, cities of Hadidazar. King David took a very large amount of bronze. So David, the, the weapons are being added to Israel's treasury. Well, when one king sees Hadidazar defeated, he becomes friends of David because Hadidazar has been an enemy, verses 9 and 10. Now when Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadidazar, Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadidazar and defeated him. For Hadidazar had been at war with Toi, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. The people are paying tribute. What's going on here? Why all this war? Why all this stuff going on? In verses 3 and 4, when, when David went forward, he, he pushed farther north than Israel's ever been. Here's what God's doing. He's forming a ring around Israel. See, as long as these people have been in the promised land, they've lived in fear of invading armies, like the Philistines. We've seen it all throughout the book of 1 Samuel. God is giving his people rest from the invading armies. We won't go back to it, but in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, God blessed Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a promised land through which I'm going to make my name known. For the first time, Israel is inhabiting that promised land 
without invasion. They're getting rest from the invading armies. Verse 11 and 12, um, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines of Amalek and from the spoil of Hadidazar, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David is bringing the spoils of victory to God and laying them before God. Now, if you've been with us, you have heard me say that in Deuteronomy 17, 17, long before Israel went into the promised land, God said the king is now to multiply wives. And David's been doing that and doing that and doing that. And I'm saying that's building to something that isn't going to go well with David. So that's an area in which he has not been obedient to God. Deuteronomy 17, 17 also says the king should not build wealth. Well, David is obedient to God in this. He's bringing the spoils of victory into the treasury of the Lord. All of us, I think, have areas in which we are submitted to God and others in which we are not. God will find us out. But as we paint a picture of David, he's in process. Some areas he's submitted, some he's not. Well, David's name keeps growing, verse 13. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom, in all Edom. He put garrisons, and the Edomites became servants to David. And why is this going so well? And the Lord, second time we've seen it, first in verse 6 now, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Because God is a just God, David is reflecting his character. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. 16 through 18, we get some of the other people who helped administer and lead Israel under David's leadership. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. We'll hear about Joab again. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Saria was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Joida, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers, probably like chaplains within the temple. Again, I, I want us to step back and I want us to get, picture, get big picture. What's God doing? He's providing rest for his people that have been under attack for as long as they've been in the promised land. Imagine, if you will, if you're living in Ukraine today, you never know when an attack's coming. By the grace of God, we're not living. But I would suggest there's other things that are attacking our rest. But when you get a picture, God's people have been without rest, and God raised up a man to give them rest. See, we started with this question, where do we turn when life runs us ragged? I would say we can turn to Jesus, who is more than sufficient to provide rest for his people. We can turn to Jesus, who is more than sufficient 
to provide rest for his people. In David's case, it was an army, invading armies. But we don't sweat that in the United States. Our borders are secure from invading armies. But we're not a people who are at rest. Not at all. You ask somebody doing it, how they're doing it, and what do they say? How are you doing? What am I? I'm so what? I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Busy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a little busy. I'm, 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 I'm crazy. I'm crazy busy. Crazy busy. Don't you know? Tim Kreider, who I've never heard of until I started researching and thinking about this sermon, writes for the New York Times. I have no idea who Tim Kreider is. But he wrote an article called The Busy Trap. I have no idea if Tim Kreider's a Christian. I don't know who he is, but I think he writes prophetically. And I want to quote a summation of his article. This is 2012, so what are we, 11 years ago? I still think he's right on. If you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how what? How busy. Busy, so busy. How busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask someone how they're doing. Busy. Not just busy. So busy. What? what, what? Crazy busy. Here's his insight. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, right? Good problem to have. Better than the opposite. Busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Here's his conclusion. We're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety. Because we're addicted to busyness and dread that we might have to face in its absence. Nobody wants to say, I don't have much going on. You're a dullard. <laughs> You're a loser. So I'm so, that's crazy, so busy. He calls it the busy trap. You know, I fall into the busy trap. So I've been a pastor 24 years. Before that, I served 15 years in campus ministry. My second year campus ministry, I came as close as I've ever come to quitting. We're at a retreat. It was a three-state area, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona. And um, I was with all these other staff. And they're talking about all they've got going on in ministry. And I think, boy, I'm not very busy. So I went to my director. We were, in these, we were down in Glorieta, New Mexico. And I'm in tears. And I, I said, Kent, I think I should quit. Oh, Andrew, that's a pretty big jump. Why do, why do you think that? Because anybody who supports me, it's bad stewardship, I said. Oh, that's another big jump. Why do you think? Because I'm hearing what all the other people doing. That's falling into the busy trap. Everybody's got it going. I better, I better get it going. 
better get it going. And I don't. I should just quit. He said, I think that's a bad idea. Things aren't always as they appear, he told me. But we feel the busy trap. Early when we opened the building, I was at the west door there greeting, and right about here in the hallway, my wife was talking to somebody, and they had been with us a while, and um, they hadn't been in church in quite a while, and their kids were early elementary, and he was saying to my wife, God, I don't, we had to do this, we had to do that, we had to do this, and, and he says, I don't know how this happens to me. And I'm thinking at the door, I don't say this, but I'm thinking at the door, I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, I have special insight. I know how this happens to you. You scheduled it. That's how it happened to you. This applies to everybody, but parents, it really applies to you. And if you're early, I would begin to think through what are our values? Because this kid's activity thing gets going and it gets out of control. And it's sports, it's band, it's FBLA, it's cheer, it's, it's everything. And people are going here and there and there and there and there. Andy Stanley as uh, a pastor in Atlanta, and he spoke to this. He said, parents, I think we're giving our kids experience, but we're not giving them relationship. Because we, we're playing, and we're playing at 8, and if we, we lose, we're on field 2 at 10. If we win, we're on field 3 at 9. And then after that, we'll, we'll try and catch lunch because we got to go. And that kind of life is not anything close to what Jesus has for his people. Matthew 11, Jesus spoke about this busyness and rest. And he said this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Next verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling us to himself. And I will say he will give you rest. And I want to go back to Tim Kreider. We're not busy because we got invading armies. We're busy because we don't want to feel empty inside. We don't want to feel insignificant. And Jesus said, I'll deal with those issues. Eugene Peterson is a man gifted with words. And he wrote the message where he put the Bible in everyday language. And I love his copy of this. And I want you to see it. Here's what he says. Now, this is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Next slide. Now, this, I love this line, and this is what made me decide this quote. Learn... The unforced, unforced rhythms of grace. I love that line. We've got to learn something totally different from our culture. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So as a staff, 
in an elder board, we're reading a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. In that book, he, he makes this point. He says, you know, many of us think when we come to Christ, we've got to get right theology, get the right ideas and make sure you're saved by grace and get that. And, and I'm not saying theology is not important. Okay? But Jesus is calling us more to more than theology. And he says, yeah, we think we've got to get the right ethics. If being a Christian and following Jesus means he's working, I do this, I don't, I'm involved with this. And, and that's true. But Jesus is calling us to much more than that. He's calling us to a lifestyle. Oh, I got my right theology. I'm doing the right. No, no, no. Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. we need to slow down. I want you to walk and live like I've left. And I'm starting to wonder, in light of what Jesus says and what Tim Cried, and we used to think of busyness as a, a boast, kind of camouflage and a complaint. I'm really significant. I'm just asking the question now. I'm just wondering if we're saying, so, so busy, so crazy, crazy, so crazy, so crazy, crazy, busy. Is that a symptom that something's really wrong in our walk with God? I'm just asking. Could being crazy busy be significant of we're really not rooted in Christ. We haven't found our significance in him. So I got to go, 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 because I need to feel significant in your eyes and mine. So I'll just go like crazy. Could being crazy busy mean we're, we're even in disobedience to Jesus? Because we're not living like him. And I understand this may be new for you and you going crazy busy here. And, I don't want to condemn, but, but maybe it's time to start asking the question. I got the right theology. I got the right works. But I'm not resting. And we're seeing here in David's life, and we can see it throughout Scripture, that God is more than sufficient to provide rest for his people. So what's the deal? Why are we nuts? Why are we crazy? Life is running us ragged in the United States. Some of us aren't making the turn, and we're going into the trees. If I could go back to my opening illustration. That's not God's design for you. It's not God's design for me. Maybe the crazy biz is so, so crazy, so busy. Maybe we need to start asking hard questions. I can tell you, it ain't what Jesus has for you. Would we be people that take Jesus as his word. Because when life is running us ragged, we can turn to Jesus, who is more than sufficient to provide rest for his people.